HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Ken Paolo from Walter Scott Wines. We'll talk to Ken about Oregon, Walter Scott, and a lot more. Um, we were going to try to taste something. We still may, but at least we're going to talk about something. That's what Ken does. He makes wine. Um, I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Ken Paolo has spent over two decades on the Oregon wine scene. He worked at and with some of the best people in the state, including Dom Lafon at Evening Land, Patricia Green, and Sane Innocent. Ken also logged time on the sales and distribution side at Evening Land, Vindegard, and Galaxy. With a little coaxing from his wife and now partner Erica, he started Walter Scott Wines in 2008 producing their first vintage in 09. He now makes wines at Castile in the Eola Amity Hills. Ken Paolo crafts critically acclaimed sought-after Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from multiple sites in Oregon. Welcome to the Great Nation, Ken. Thank you for having me. Did we, uh, were we accurate in that intro? For very, very I, accurate. What yes. happened? Was there one thing that wasn't? No, the, we don't actually make the wine at Castile, but we lease a facility from the Castile oh, family. Okay. So we'll clear that up. We'll get to that later, but we'll, everything else is, okay, uh, we'll is very accurate. But there's a Castile connection, yeah. which, you know, the name itself is worth mentioning. And the uh, Walter Scott, had it not been for Erica Landon pushing me to do it, I'd probably still be working for other people. So she's probably the biggest reason that I we mentioned this that because that's the way it felt. Yeah. You it know, is. sometimes you kind of got it going, but you need that person like, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. All right. We're talking to Ken 
at Coleman Restaurant in New York City. Um, I want to thank my friends Katya Sharnagel and Marcus Glocker for their hospitality. We're literally sitting in maybe one of the hottest restaurants in New York on a Monday when they're closed. And this is a gorgeous place. It's a beautiful space. With a killer uh, wine list of which you're on. All right, so as discussed, mm -hmm. before we get into everything, I think it would be great for my listeners to have a sense of where you came from and you got here. Sure. So I could use some detail, but I don't need you to get in the trenches. But give me that journey in life and wine sure. that got you to toiling over the barrels and making wine at uh, Walter Scott. Right. Well, it basically starts somewhere in the fifth year of college when I was uh, playing more basketball and drinking beer than actually going to school. So I... Well, it took five years, obviously. Yeah, exactly. So I, I took a break, got into restaurants, got the bug. But the restaurant thing was just for a job. It was just a job. When you got there, there was stuff going on that oh, you started paying. So go ahead. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. It's, it's great. Uh, you know, worked at a little tiny restaurant called Morton's Bistro uh, in... Uh, Salem and all the Yola Amity Hills winemakers used to come in there for dinner. So you'd have Mark Flossick, you'd have a uh, restaurant of Evesham you'd have the Castiles come in, you had the Duches from Freedom Hill. Uh, we had uh, John Thomas from Thomas Cellar, Steve Dorner, all these guys wow. coming in. And I was like, kind of, they'd do a tasting of the previous vintage and I'd be there pouring it for them. And I just kind of became obsessed and just immersed myself and, but they were kind of outreachy type people, like friendly yeah, and uh, sit was, and talk with you for and sure. taste my wine. It, it was, I mean, an embracing community. It, the Willamette Valley is an incredibly embracing okay. community. It's really special. So one of the other waiters there, I asked him, told him I want to get in the wine business. And he's like, well, what part? He's like, there's marketing, there's distribution, there's sale, I mean, production. There's all these things. And I was like, all of it. And he's like, you can't. I'm like, well, I'm going to try. <laughs> and so I, I bought every book I could. I took tasting classes with Bob Liner and Matt Elson from Liner and Elson up in Portland and just buried myself in it and got introduced to Mark Vlasic of St. Innocent, uh, poured for him at the Salem Wine Festival. And then I just, I harassed him relentlessly for like eight weeks. I called him, I called him, and then I just showed up. Like I want a job, and he's like, "Why? Why? I don't know if he pushed you off, but he didn't have a job. He didn't need anyone. You had zero experience. Uh, probably mean, all of the above. Okay. You know, he was a pediatrician's assistant, so he had another job, and then he was, you know, building up his business while doing that. So uh, I end up, you know, showing up one day, and he has me top all of his barrels, and then I end up working harvest, and then I worked for him for like fourteen years. What year was that? I was 95, so that'd be May, June of 1995. So my first three vintages of harvest were... So I'm off. I said over two decades. I'm right. You are right. But it's pushing you closer it. to three. Uh, you may be on the over on that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Go ahead. People are like, did you start making wine when you were 18? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, like so... Like LeBron. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I worked for Mark and being obsessed. So I helped make the wines, worked in the cellar, did all distribution, worked some outside markets but wanted a bit more. And so I uh, worked for a small importer in Portland called Vondegaard. Uh, I was obsessed with Burgundy. Uh, we imported Munere Gibor before they were discovered. <laughs> we brought in Chauve, Paul Pernod, Bernard Moreau. 
uh, pick stuff. a great producer. We had them, Eagle Aurier. So my exposure was pretty broad. And, uh, and Did you get to taste a lot everything? Tasted everything. So that was a good uh, lesson there. Incredible But lesson. you knew that's why you wanted to do that, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, th I thought about making wine for a long time. And in, in this whole scenario, I was selling Erica Landon wine for like five years before I finally, you know, got off the pot and we got together and we pretty much have been inseparable since 07. And, uh, you know, I'd made a little bit of wine in 06. I thought so, I was. This is something I should know, but uh -huh. I don't. And I'll admit it. Erica Landon wine was what is what was Erica Landon, uh, she was a sommelier in, in Portland. She started out at Timberline Lodge putting I boxes away. I knew she away. was a hospitality, but did she ever make wine or hook up into No, oh, no, okay. no. No, she was- So it's she just was, that, that influential wine person that came into your life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She, yes, yeah, amazing woman. You know, she decided at a certain point, so she was at Timberline Lodge, and then she was at the Dundee Bistro, and at a certain point, she's like, I need to know more. And so she went through the uh, the court. She did. Um, she taught for the International Sommelier Guild. She got her advanced. I mean, she was on that path. And you know, when we got together, I had a little bit of wine that I'd made. And she's like, "What are you going to do with that?" I'm like, "Well, I'm working two jobs and making a lot of money." I'm like, "It's just kind of a thing." And she's like, "I think you should do it." And I'm like, so "Okay." Freeze there for a second. You're mm -hmm. making a little wine. You're working two jobs. So you're mm -hmm. doing like the import distribution. You're still working at a winery. Mm -hmm. And are you make? Where are you making the wine? At that winery or at a it friend's? Was at, it was at Saint Innocent. And you back know, to Saint Innocent. I, I was still there. Oh, so you I was doing. I did both jobs. So uh, Saint Innocent for 14 years and Vondegaard for 10. Uh, the two simultaneously for 10 years. Wow. And um, you know, I thought I was going. I was like, there's plenty of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I'm going to do Rhone varietals. So I made Roussan, the first vintage. And my wife's like, what are you doing? You know more about Burgundy than most people like I know. Like could do that in California. Right. You shouldn't be doing that up in No, Oregon, and she's like, right? if you're going to do it, try and do it better. I'm like, all right. So after harvest of 08, I decided that, and we decided as a team, this is all we wanted to do is do our own thing. So we emptied out our 20 grand worth of retirement. Uh, hired Claire Carver from Big Table Farm to uh, create our label, and we tried to source some fruit. Uh, we couldn't get much in 08, but in 2009, I had left St. Innocent, and my dear friends at Patricia Green Cellars were like, if you're going to do your thing, we'd love to have you work for us, and in exchange, instead of paying you, we're going to give you access to part of our facility, and you can work for us and make your wines there. So now you're out of St. Innocent. You're I'm out of St. Innocent. Green. And you're doing just both. working work? harvest okay. and then selling for the importer. Okay. So I couldn't then do like three jobs. One of them had to go. And, and by then Mark <laughs> and I had pretty much decided that we'd worked with each other long enough. <laughs> We're still friendly. We're just different paths and it was right. time for me to go. Right. And so we made Pinot Blanc. We made like 600 cases, which was way more than we expected. Uh, how we were going to pay for all those grapes, uh, we we sold we sold bikes we <laughs> sold our bikes to make help make great payments we sold bottles of 05 chambertin from Rousseau to make great payments i mean that bottle we sold for like 750 bucks in Big 09 deal, right i mean that's probably worth 5 grand now we could probably make well, half of a great payment it's all now relative, though. so you know we sacrificed a lot and and worked really hard you know i was eventually 
Um, so the Patricia Green thing goes for how long? I'm there for about, I'm just there for harvest. Okay. And then I'd go there but on weekends. Harvest and winemaking. You harvest, were... I'd go check on my wines on the weekends, top, and then when it was time to bottle, uh, bottle. But by November, Mark Tarlov had reached out to have me come and uh, work for Eveningland to help with some of their distribution channels and to kind of mend some fences with all those people that despised Eveningland for stealing Seven Springs Vineyard. And given that that was a vineyard that I worked with and was kind of like, I love that site. And it was mm. everything in, as far as I was concerned for Pinot Noir in uh, the Ola Amity Hills. So part of my deal with Eveningland is that I get to work with Isabel Meunier, Ian Burst, assistant winemaker, Ryan Hannaford, the vineyard manager, and make our wines there and then sell a bunch of wine for them. So it was a really amazing deal and learned a ton. So for 2010 and 2011, made our wines there, sold all the Eveningland wines. Uh, Erica was still consulting for restaurants in Portland. So I was driving back and forth. How much wine Portland. were you making? Uh, we we tended to make pretty big jumps. cases or no? We got to about 1,200 cases for 2010. Okay. And then 2011, we were hovering around 1,800 cases. And then there, there was the, that Tarlov was forced out. And then there was a new regime change. So uh, Greg Ralston took over. He had a different vision, which didn't include me. So I left, but then I needed to figure out was that stylistic or just, I need my own people? Yeah, he needed his own people. But as far as having your chops by then, you knew what you were doing. I knew what I was doing. And I also, you know, learned a, a ton. I probably learned more in two years there about um, vineyards, farming, and winemaking than I had the previous 10 or a lot of my time at, at, at St. Dennis. three of the most important things. Absolutely. Today. I mean, you have to be a businessman market and all that. All of that. But it, does, it don't matter unless you get the product, and that's what. We, we knew how to sell wine. Then figuring out how to make great wine was about details, and that's probably the biggest thing I took away from working with Dominic Lafon. I mean, here's one of my favorite you stories. You saw that there that you saw never saw like, anywhere before. No. No, like you know, another we, level. a completely different level. We were having lunch during harvest one time. And one of the interns looks over at Dominique Lafon and like, hey, Dominique, what's the best wine you've ever drank? I mean, he's been running Comp Lafon since 83, 83, 84. And he's like, I haven't drank it yet. And we're all like, what? And then someone's like, what's the best wine you ever made? And he's like, I haven't made it yet. And this is in 2011. And that was super inspiring. And even to this day, having gone and worked with him uh, in 2017 for two weeks and in 2022 for a couple days and tasting in the cellar. He's still semi-retired, right? but he's still obsessed with greatness. And you can see that like, we had a 2017 last night Porzo, and it was a lightning rod in a vintage where you wouldn't expect that. Good so, makers make good wine and good, bad, you know, okay. They do. And so Eveningland, I decided- Wait, so you you're doing, you, you mentioned 2011, I think mm -hmm. around 14, you pack it in. To, to no, to 2000, <coughs> February 14th of 2012, I quit Eveningland, uh, but I had to store all my barrels and all of my wine there until it was bottled and then move it. But quit so, on good terms where you could keep, mm, not really. Okay. Yeah, they, they charged me to keep my barrels okay. there. All right, it was a little uh, contentious. But uh, I still had some of my best friends there. There were just some folks that I just didn't get along okay. with. And that happens. Sure. Um, 
but what I took away from there far exceeds any of the, any of the bad blood you will, or, and it's under the bridge by now. So we needed a place to make wine. And, uh, I had taken by that time, another job working, uh, I was going to go work for galaxy and another imported distributor. Yeah. I needed, I needed a job to help finance what we were doing. Um, I like that you would do anything in wine because it oh, all had a sure. value to your learning base and, and I was lucky to, I, I searched out people that were smarter than me and, and tried to learn everything I know about winemaking. I learned on the job from other people and paying attention and working really hard and, and listening and trying to absorb all of it and ask questions. And people like Dominique or Doug Tunnell or Josh Bergstrom or, or Russ Rainey or Terry Castile or Ben Castile were always willing to share their knowledge with me. And I just took it in and tried to run it through my own meat grinder and apply it to what I do. You're lucky it was good people. Great people. Not good, exceptional. Yeah, yeah. There's good people out there that could have helped, but these are like, and they're just they're they're great, great folks. So Tarlov then hires Erica to help start the Chapter Twenty Four project. What so is that? So that's the Fire and Flood, Rose and Arrow. Oh, okay. All of those things. So um, we're trying to find a facility for him, and I'm on this Eola Amity Hills email list. And so I get this email from the Castiles saying that this facility on Justice Vineyard, which is contiguous with their property, is empty. So we go to look at it for him. And Mark's like, you guys should rent it because it's not the right space for me. And so we go look at it, meet up with Ted Castile. I mean, there's it's empty because um, Mimi Castile's husband... Uh, Nick Gunn had started Wandering Angus Ciders and they outgrew it. So they needed a bigger space. So it had been empty for like two years. Wow. It was basically just a big pole barn, concrete floors, super well insulated. There was a shitty little 1970 double wide on the property. And Ted's like, if you want that, you can rent that too. Uh, and we walked it and it wasn't very nice. And we leave and I'm like, well, we're not going to do that, but we should rent the facility. And my wife's like, no way we're going to rent that because the winery can pay our rent. And I'm like, okay. So we moved into this shitty double wide, tried to make it nicer. There's actually an old video online that I'll send you a link to about a potential reality harvest show that our friend Andrew Turner was trying to make. And so we moved on to the property and in 2012 brought on two minority partners, two amazing people, Sue and Andy Steinman. Um, We thought we could, do it all on our own. That and was my hit question. Yeah. You know, you would love to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And if it happens, you don't split it with anyone. But yeah. you talk to restaurateurs and even other ones, there's always somebody there. So proper logic said we need to get people in. And it sounds like you brought people in that also had skill sets besides <sighs> financial backing that can incredible. You know, so we we were apprehensive about Are these breaking. friends or people you friends pitched? and people people we'd known for for okay. years who were total wine. So it nuts. wasn't meet my cousin who has money and loves wine. You no, 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 him. no, no, no. There, I, I had met them while at Saint Innocent. They used to come out for um, open house events. They knew Erica through the International Pinot Noir celebration, and Erica had actually reached out to Sue Steinman because we had another guy who wanted to be our partner, and we were terrified of him. We love him, but we were terrified of him. Just and being in the mix, it's not being a guy in the mix, you wanted to like deal a guy with. We're like, oh, yeah, we don't think that's going to go well. Yeah. And so Erica sat down and had lunch with Sue. And Sue's like, well, why don't you ask us? And we're like, well, we just don't know if we want to yet. They're partners with um, the Pigeon folks, uh, Andy and Gabe. 
And we, we knew they had a, a vision of what they tried to do to help people, et cetera. And so Erica left and Sue went home and told Andy, she's like, we're gonna become partners with Walter Scott. And they kept sending us text messages with pictures of our wines that they were drinking in various restaurants. And so we sat down with them and Andy's like, have you guys done a cash flow analysis? And we're like, what's that? <laughs> I mean, we, 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 Bingo. We, we, we made it and we sold it six to nine months before the next round was, was ready to go. And so we were, we were positive, but it was, you know, we had hit a wall to where I thought I could sell 600 cases of wine in a month and buy all of our equipment and it wasn't going to happen. You so we sat a down business plan and model and we, we hit the lottery because not only are these people family and friends now, I mean, they were friends before, but the vision and the, the help that, especially what Andy has done. Sue is kind of the de facto legal counsel, but Andy helped us guide the cash flow and all of those things because we had no idea. I'm like, oh, sweet. I can buy grapes for 2000 bucks. And he's like, but wait, you got to buy those again next year, plus all the barrels and then all the bottles. I'm like, oh, right. It's all those things down the road. So that was huge. So we did evaluation of the winery. I'm full disclosure. I don't care. The winery was worth like 380 grand at the time but they wanted their 20% to be a, a big 20% so that it would matter. So we valued everything at retail. Usually we'd value it at bulk. And so the 60 grand they put in at that point, plus a couple small operating capital loans, that's it. You know, our partners are our partners. Andy gets a salary, insurance. He's probably the most underpaid employee uh, on the team, but they're, they're partners. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have partners that are a bank they're not yeah, a bank. Yeah, it sounds like the right. And so these two, you know, we center. we just we make wine, we sell it, we make wine, we sell it, and he helps guide all of that. And that's that's kind of where we are now. By by 2012, Erica and I did basically almost 30 tons, just the two of us, in two weeks, because <laughs> that's all the time we had from our day jobs to bring in all the fruit. <laughs> that's funny. And so we would commute back and forth to Portland, me to sell wine, her to work her consulting gigs. Uh, by summer of 2013, she's pregnant and by my, she's essentially my assistant winemaker by, uh, harvest. She's six months pregnant. She's still doing Pijage and we get through harvest. Tell uh, everyone what Pijage is. Oh, so Pijage, uh, punching down the cap of the right. must in a fermentation. There's the grapes there. And we do, and you... we do it with our feet in, and these were crappy old fermenters and I've got pictures of her sitting up there. And we'd get up at five in the morning, do our work, drive to Portland, do our job, come home, work until midnight. That's crazy. And, you know, Lucy was born and I was like, I just can't anymore. And we had, we had made an agreement as, as a team and as partners that until we were, everyone was getting a dividend, no one would go on salary. Right. And I just went to the team like, I'm, I'm flailing. I'm not doing, I'm we doubled production. We went from 1800 cases to 4,000 with 2014. And so we needed me to be just Full there. Time. So another 50% cut and pay in 2014 to be my own boss. I would never change a thing. <laughs> uh, and then by the fall, Erica was able to quit her day job as well. And so 2014, and no looking back, no looking back <clears throat> on 14. And now we're hovering around 6,000 cases. All right. We're going to get into that. Cool. Um, but, there was something interest, interesting in in one of our last emails before you came into town. Mm. Um, you said to me, and I quote you: "You said look forward to catching up 
lots of stuff to chat about regarding the last several years. Yeah. So I'm curious because the last <laughs> several years were not ordinary last no. several years. No. You know, we don't have to chronicle the last several years the way we just did, you know, with your right. coming up. But what what prompted you to say that? Like, what are the things? Oh. Was it expansion? Was it COVID? Was it, I mean, what, what's like the last several years, obviously, well, you talk to me a little about that <laughs> general to specific. Well, you and I have been trying to do this for yeah five years, but, six but, years. But part of it was your pain in the ass. And I just, <laughs> I, I understand now why it's not easy. But then COVID came and nobody was doing anything. Right. And I knew you came to New York at least once a year. And I'd rather sit across from you than do a remote. So I also waited for that. Yeah, exactly. So that us finally being able to do this, you know, 2020, my last visit here was for the Grand Crew tasting. That was March 3rd. And then the world shut down. I was here for my 50th birthday. And then, you know, obviously COVID was challenging. Uh, Harvest of 2020 was supposed to be like an escape for all of us to like make wine and the celebration and we had fires and smoke without tea. knowing about COVID. You thought the 2020 harvest would just be this big celebration. No, and, I, or, we, I, we thought that like, cause we were in the midst of COVID that um, harvest was going to be just like, Oh man, we can like oh, just okay. escape from the realities of COVID and just make wine. I got and it. then the fires came and we had smoke taint and all this stuff. And it was, it was tough. Um, so t- I was going to ask you if smoke um, affected you. So in 2020, fires in the north mm-hmm. west down to you know yeah. california and all that yeah um how threatening was that i mean is this stuff sight lines from you know your vineyard part i mean no it was it was it was very different than what they experienced in california okay but incredibly intense so what happened was there were a couple of small fires up in the cascades uh the clackamas river watershed uh, the Saniam River and the McKinsey River. There were a couple small ones up there. And a system pushed out of Canada. And when systems come out of Canada in September, we get really, if, if it starts snowing in Denver in September, it means we're going to get really hot, dry winds oh, out really? of the gorge. So 40 mile an hour gusts and the system stoked all these fires and basically delivered us smoke. We couldn't see... 50 yards in front of us for Not two bad. days straight. You're talking about like multi-thousand acre fires that were blowing down. We had the worst. Because of the system and, and yep. strong enough to. Oh, it was the, the sky was black or orange. Uh, we had uh, the worst air pollution on the planet for two days straight. And, you know, it. So does everything get screwed up? Some of it you decide. There were there were Did it cut down? There were spots that were really affected. So that Emily Hills, a lot. Some places, you know, the northern part of the valley is usually seven to ten days ahead of us. So they were there. There are successes, absolutely, for 2020. But uh, smoke tain is a is a thing. Uh, climate change is a thing, and our decisions uh, were f- for our business. And we we made a little bit of rosé. We made a tiny bit of of chardonnay. We declassified eleven thousand dollar a ton grapes into a $25 wine just to show our commitment to right we're only going to put the best things in the bottle right and we we didn't pick all the Pinot Noir we split farming costs with our growers we paid full prices for Chardonnay expecting that the white grapes weren't affected by smoke taint some were some weren't 
you just had to you had to do what you had to do for yourself and to protect our growers. We our growers are without them we have nothing and they're like family. We pay by the acre with everyone and we want lifelong relationships whether it's our growers. We don't want to uh, compromise no compromise product by just pushing. So you and I could sit here and do a show on climate change in general and how it affects you. Mm -hmm. But the quick question is, and we'll get off of it, is it affecting when you plant, when you pick, you know, ripeness and all of that, or that hasn't changed much? Apologies for that. It's all right. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Um, Are you like, like there's a whole sparkling wine industry in England because of climate change. Because it's warmer. Are you, are you there yet? Or are no. you, okay. There, there, there's a number of people making sparkling wine. In the Willamette Valley, there are people considering... But not just in reference to sparkling. Right. You know, you pick later, earlier, same? Uh, I Generally the same. Okay. The, the, the thing is, then it's it's the extremes. In uh, uh, 2016, we started picking on August 26th. In uh, 2011, our last grapes arrived on November 2nd. So there's no pattern yet. It's, it's, it's wild. We had a, a heat dome over the Willamette, over the Northwest that lasted three days. It was 113, 114, 115 degrees in late June. Uh, in 2013, we had seven inches of rain in five days. It's just these extreme I, events. I think the word change after climate is... It's appropriate. Is appropriate yeah. because it's, it's hard to predict everything. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about all that. I wanted to ask you something because I know uh, how important family is to you mm -hmm. and how you, if you found, how you found, and do you have that life family balance? You realize how important kids are. You realize mm -hmm. how important the business is. Yeah. You're accountable to the family, to your partners, to yourself. Yeah. Do you lie down and go, shit, I'm all over the place or are you moving towards or found that balance? I think COVID helped us, honestly. Not planned. Not planned. I mean, a lot of my doctor friends were home with their kids when they never saw them. You know? right. And you're in a business where. Yeah. So that was forced in a good way. Forced in a good way. So, you know, Eric and I, and with help from a number of people, whether it's interns, our partners, uh, friends in the business, uh, busted our ass to build this thing. And March 1st, of every year, we would open up for tasting appointments and we would host them, her or myself, twice a day, five days a week, through harvest, work our own markets, go sell our wine, go to New York, go to California, go to Arizona, go to Washington. And we did that through when Lucy was born. We used to deliver our own wine in Portland. I have pictures of my wife <laughs> with Lucy on her back delivering wine to zoo pans. And it's what we did. It's what we had to do to make it work. And we continued doing that because we wanted to tell our own story. We have we have one we have two employees, uh, Jessica Pierce and then Kathy McBride, uh, and then Andy, of course. Um, and so we we had to do all of that, and we we were finding ourselves spread pretty thin. Uh, we did balance things pretty well with Lucy, but you know, she just turned nine, and and during COVID, you know, we were all together. The first three months of COVID for the wine business was kind of terrifying for us. We had two separate conversations because well, most of the wine the that, unknown or most of the wine that comes in New York goes to restaurants. There is no restaurants and well, oh right. That's not to, unknown. So that's your dead in the water. I mean, everyone looks at how much wine people bought and how excited people got about wine in 2020, and people were home reading about it. One of our best customers came out of 2020 because he had time to read about us. But the first couple months were like, How are we gonna make it? We need to sell 
as much wine in a month to make our How was bills. your mailing list set up going into that? We had a nice mailing list, a lot did of support. Did they double down? We didn't have a club. But did it, people say, you know, I've been buying a case a year. I'm stuck home. <laughs> you know, give we, me two cases. We sold a lot more DTC in, okay. in 2020 for sure. Right. And uh, my wife and Jessica Pierce started a subscri subscription um, wine club, which we call our Wolf Pack, the, right. the group we create. And this was it, during COVID, the Wolf Pack came around? That's how it came around. Okay. And we, we tried to not just help ourselves during this situation, but we reached out to local um, honey producer and tea makers and lotion to try and support other businesses through Smart. ours. So we bought their product and sent it out. It's like, this is our favorite soap from Eola Crest Cattle. This is, we sent out bulbs for people to plant flowers in the spring cool. as part of our Wolf Pack. So. Similar sensibility. It's like, why not try, you know, like their wine? I'll probably like the honey. Yeah. You know. And this, this able to connect. And as much as we all started to despise Zoom, it Oof. allowed us, you know, we used to have tasting, tasting events at our winery. I would move 100 barrels outside so people could be inside. And one person might ask me a question and I'd talk to them for 20 minutes, but I wouldn't be able to answer that question for everyone in the room. But with Zoom tasting, so we sent out tasting kits, we would send out bottles of wine to people and we would do a tasting with the Wolf Pack of two wines every month. And we got to, the questions were great. It was still able to engage. And it was this, a real, almost a better connectivity than we would in, in person in some cases. And there is some, Bigger. It was just, it's hard to explain. Same or better info, bigger audience. Uh, better. Not, not. Because everyone got to the Not the touchy-feely, but they were there and they were interested. Right. So you touched yeah. a lot of, and, and they the, were there because they wanted to be there. Exactly. And yeah. a lot of these people had already visited our facility and they were, you know, they, they were vested, invested in us and knew what we'd done to get there. So it was. That's uh, great. But since, since then, we're trying to, you know, make sure. We're not really going to be open for tasting appointments much anymore. Um, Lucy's nine. I help coach her soccer team. I coach <laughs> her basketball team. I'm 0-10 as a head basketball coach, by the way. You're fired. I should be fired. Um, but So that know, is work-life battle. The fact that you're ticking that stuff trying. off means that yeah. you know you're there. Because I could tell you, you know, I worked in media and everything. You don't want to miss any kid stuff because you don't get it back. No, you don't. The stuff you have to, you have to. But the other stuff, to. not because I'm tired or right. I'll go to another, you know, just do it. All right. We have to take a quick break. We're talking to Ken Paolo. Um, Ken is the proprietor of Walter Scott Wines in Oregon. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk about those wines and uh, what goes into it. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Ken Paolo. Ken makes Walter Scott wines. I think you have an idea of who Ken is right now, um, even though he does have some secrets that he did share with me that I'm not allowed to tell people <laughs> about his shady past. Um, but that'll probably so, come so out shady. on its time, you know? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, all right, so now this is the part of the show. Let's talk about your wines, the farming, you know, winemaking, all of that stuff. So, and I'll kind of throw this out and then you talk us through it. You make your wine through vineyard partners mm -hmm. who own their vineyards. You know, you don't own vineyards. Of your partners, it seems to me that all or some of them are a combination of organic, biodynamic, dry farmers, and certainly families. You do great you know, research. Which, you know, which is all the, uh, you know, coolest stuff about that. Yeah. Um, I think you led on to it a little, but you have a great bunch of people, and I don't know if we could talk about all of them, but you mm -hmm. can pick some out, not excluding others, just citing them as sure. examples. But how do you come to these guys? You know, why are they available? Because I'm mm. sure there's people you want that you can't get or they weren't available at the time. And, you know, what do you require of them? Were the requirements mm. there already that you just need them to do their thing? Right. You know, how, how does it, so you work with what, at least nine sites? Nine or 10. It okay. depends on the vintage. Uh, we've had a couple that have, that have sold. Uh, some other relationships that have, have gone, you know, by the wayside. Uh, you know, when we, really launched it, uh, making our wines at Patricia Green Cellars in 09, I had to beg to find fruit. And some of that fruit we bought through Patricia Green Cellars because they were getting some Bishop Creek Pinot Noir. Now the uh, 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 Nicholas J uh, home vineyard right. out in that used to be Bishop Creek. So we had to earn our way into sites. And I would call people that I respected to try and work my way into better and better vineyards. Is so, this that 2014-ish time when you're really on your own or even preceding that? Preceding nine. So, so you're just always looking so for So 09 and 2010, and exactly. Yeah. And try and find the best sites we can get our hands on. And um, I got to fill in blanks. Mm -hmm. But at that point, you knew you wanted to make these thoughtful wines. Like, yes, I wouldn't vint a grape that I couldn't send my kid through the vineyard type thing, right? Yeah, so oh yeah, like of course. So that was yeah. your sensibility. Josh and that. I talk about that all the time. He's like, I don't want my kids drinking wines when they're old enough that have residual chemicals in them. Right. And okay. that's that's fair. We have a site that uh, Witness Tree was recently replanted. One of my dear friends planted it. You can walk through there and build a salad out of the cover crop and eat it while you're doing really? it. It's almost all pea tendrils throughout Crazy there. So stuff. it's amazing to be yeah. able to do that, yeah. given what farming used to be. So we, you know, 2010, I, Mark Tarlov told me to go find more Eola Amity Hills fruit. And so I called up Russ Rainey of Evesham Wood because 
people share the, the the rising tide floats all boats is still a thing in the Willamette Valley. So I reached out to him and he's like, you should talk to the Yola Springs people because they've got 50 tons available because someone had to step away from a 50 ton contract. I show up at the vineyard. They're like, well, we got this old stuff and we got this really old stuff. I'm like, well, I can only take like two tons. So I'll take some of that, but my company's going to take the rest. And from there, it's our longest standing relationship is with Denny and Thelma Peso who owned Eola Springs. They also had another vineyard, Sojo, up the hill. So we've- S-O-J-E-A-U? Yeah, so it's right. their last name, Peso. So Sojourn Cellars sent a cease and desist, so Sojourner had to go away. I got it. Um, but Denny and Thelma, since 2010, we've worked with them. So a, a, a really, and you know, as far as farming and what we ask for, you know, we seek out places that have unique voices and being a Burgundy nut, I, we made 13 single vineyard wines in 2021, seven, six Chardonnay and seven Pinot Noir, all based on place. And I is want that those places. Is that the most skews you've done in a year? Or? It, it is. Do, it is. Is that now up or down where you're going to be about? That's about where I'd like Nine, it to be. 10, 12, 11, whatever. I have this vision of also doing three single vineyard Alagos. Hey, my wife thinks I'm insane, but I might I have a little fun with that. I don't think you're insane at all. Um, so, you know, we've, some of these vineyards were farmed conventionally and being that organic farming is more expensive, we offered more money. We want our growers to be profitable in many cases. So you had a hand in moving them in a proper we direction. Tried, yeah. And they all, they, you know, Freedom Hill, Dustin Duchet, the son took over for the parents and he wanted to move to organic farming because he, he believes in it. And so, you know, watching evolutions like that, watching that that legacy handoff and see it be super successful, whether it's Jason Led or Adam Campbell is, sure. is, is fun There's for us. But money. when I have a grower who's like the Duchet family at Freedom Hill have been in the business since 81 and in 2015, Dan Duchet is like, here's the keys, son, don't mess it up. And they took off to Hawaii and Dustin has done nothing but get better and better at what he does and watching his evolution. I've said it a bunch of times over the last year has been one of my favorite things. Um, that's, doing this. That's a nice thing. Um, do you do you feel like? Well, first I want to ask you, and we talked about this off air for a second. Mm -hmm. There's something very cool about not being stuck with two parcels right outside of the property you bought because that's your estate wine, right? And then you're, you you sort of develop or choose your partners. So you have nine different partners. Mm -hmm all different soils, mm -hmm. exposures, mm -hmm. microclimes and all mm -hmm. that, that gives you sort of the palate to do what you want. But most of what you do is vineyard designate, right? Most of it. So most do you make wines that are not vineyard designate that you blend? Yeah. Yeah. So we have... Cuvées? We have several. So we have our Willamette Valley wines. So okay. the La Combeur, which is a play on words, a comb being a, a fault or valley in the hillside of the Cote d'Or and then Ver Green was kind of a thank you to Patricia Green Sellers, so right, the, right, the right. green fault. Cool. So the Willamette Valley is kind of our gateway drug into Walter Scott. So we we don't buy inexpensive grapes for our least expensive wine. It's all a declassification. It's not your sensibility. If I have 17 barrels of Freedom Hill, we may only bottle up 10 of them because those 10 speak of what Freedom Hill has to say. And then we can blend down. Which you and, have great confidence in and make right. your... My wife and I taste through everything. Now we taste through with Kathy and Jess, all the wines. And we send out, we have a 3000 case facility that I make 
6,000 cases of wine in. So we bottle up <laughs> half of our production okay. before vintage. You got to get the hell but, out of there. But we want, we want our Willamette Valley, which is now in the high 30s, to drink like someone would be happy, to drink as though it would be worth $100. Because I've said this, and Erica, say, I say it all the time, Becky Wasserman, amazing woman, obviously, used to say you could tell a great Burgundian by their Bourgogne Rouge or Bourgogne Blanc. It would let you know that they cared. And that was like, if it's this good, think about the Premier Crew and Grand Crew. And that's our point with that. And I, then I, we... I believe that. You know, I, I believe that's the way. Um, so we have those two wines, and then we have uh, two reserve cuvées that are Yola Amity Hills focused. So that's even a step up. Kind of a for reserve the, cuvee, kind yeah. of a bridge wine like to that. the single vineyards. And then in 2019, uh, finally made uh, a wine for our daughter, uh, Cuvée Lucille, which is Chardonnay. Uh, it's She's walked vineyards with me, or I've carried her since she was a baby through sites. Uh, but this is a particular block at Freedom Hill that she and I have walked together since she could walk. And uh, she picked cool. out the label color, and it's got sparkles on it and stuff. So it's... You know what I'm curious about? Because you really get to literally taste such a diversity of what the area, you know, has to offer. Why is Oregon so great for Pinot Noir and Chard? I mean, you know, all these comparisons to Burgundy now, you know, quality, whatever, latitude. Right. I mean, what, why is it such a good place for those reasons? I know there's thoughtful people like you and farming practices, but is it all of that? I think it's all of it. We have beautiful soil. We still have, even with climate change and extremes, a moderate climate. Uh, we're warm and dry in the summer, uh, cool at night. Uh, so it's kind we, of ideal we get it. We, we, we get water. Our soils hold water too. That's one of the things. I mean, we can talk about climate change and all that. Water is going to be a huge issue, but I think it's all of the things. The Willamette Valley is not a big place. You know, but I, water with crappy soil means nothing. So you got a beautiful volcanic that. soil, marine sedimentary soils. Uh, you know, the, the Willamette Valley in the, is, is not a big place. Like, I get a little irritated sometimes when people are like, man, I really like Oregon Chardonnay. I'm like, no, you don't. You like Willamette Valley Chardonnay because that's really what matters. No disrespect to the gorge and none to Southern Oregon, but you don't drink French Chardonnay. You drink Burgundy. fool you. I know. I'm terrible. No, but that's a good point because I think people don't realize that. The, it, now they know. Yeah, this focus on, on the Willamette Valley and certain sections within it just for us rise above. And one of those is the Yola Amity Hills where we live, sitting right in the middle of the Willamette Valley, pummeled by the Van Duzer Corridor winds, uh, all those things contribute. All the things. People think, I, years ago, I was on a marketing trip for St. Innocent in Chicago. And they're like, how do you grow grapes in a rainforest? I'm like, 75% <laughs> of Oregon is a desert. And between June 1st and October 1st in the Willamette Valley, we get about six to nine inches of rain. It's dry. It's the, the, the grass is brown. There's wheat. But that there's works for nuts. the it works vines, great. right? Yeah. yeah. It's dry and warm. We're, we're, we have sunlight until 10 o'clock because we're northern part of the hemisphere. So it's, it's but when it starts to go away in the fall, it drops right. really fast. You have to manage both ends. Exactly. Um, two questions. Are there varietals beyond your wheelhouse, which is Pinot and Chard, that you would like to make? And I mean like to make, not as like a hobby thing. 
Um, and to that point, does that mean maybe you continue to look to expand your partners? No, we, we're done. We, You're we, there we'd on actually, that part. We'd actually like to make a little less wine. Okay. Um, not that we're old or getting older, but, you know, 60% of our production is Chardonnay. Um, and that's probably going to increase. Uh, making Chardonnay, it's not that it's less hard. It's, you know, it's less digging out of fermenters. It's less punching down. It's all of these things. Uh, we also believe the Willamette Valley is the best place on the planet for cool climate Chardonnay. And we've put, you know, we've had growers plant it for us. 2021, we made over 4,000 cases of Chardonnay. Uh, we made 140 cases of Chardonnay in 2011 for perspective. So a few things. I mean, Chard is really coming into its own you know, in Oregon place. and by yeah. you, all the things that make good shard, you know, are there. They are. Plus the side things you mentioned, it's not as big a pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, as, as far as all of that. Yeah. All right. So let's shift over to wine making. Mm -hmm. You know, we know your partners, you know, you have all these vineyard designate partners. You're terrific. Some of them go back. Um, we talked about you have a facility at Castile. Mm -hmm. It's your own facility. Does that work for the uh, foreseeable future? Or do you sit there one day and say, maybe I knock it down and build or I got to go somewhere else? We have, I mean, it's a unique situation where we have a 20 year lease on the facility and the Castiles have said, you know, do, do what you need to do to make it work for you. And we just try and make the place beautiful. We've, fences, horse barn, goats, chickens, all the stuff. Uh, the facility itself, you know, we, it's a, it's definitely a Tetris puzzle. As I mentioned, you know, uh, it's a 6,000 case facility uh, and, or a 3,000 case facility. 2022, we did 8,400 cases. Plus I over vintage half of the 21. So I had 11,000 cases of liquid oh, wow. in this facility. And, you know, we don't want to make that much wine. But Mother Nature was very generous, and man, are we thankful to have it after you know some tougher vintages. Generous that it was a lot and good, and good. Yeah, shockingly I mean, it's one good. thing you know if it's a lot. And we were we were one cluster per shoot on every vine, and we still got three tons to the acre. Jesus so, Christ. you know, we're we're super happy where we are. You know, we everything that Eric and I have is in that winery. Everything we own, all of our wealth, everything is in that, and. Would we like to own a piece of property, maybe plant four acres using Hubert Lamy as a model, super high density? Yes. Are we lucky to work with some of the best farmers in the Valley? Uh, Mike Etzel Sr., uh, Kevin Chambers, uh, the Duches. Uh, we buy grapes from the Castiles. Uh, I have access to some of the best fruit in the Valley and you know, only one of those people make their own wine. So it's a very common practice to do that. We, yeah. We pay by the acre. We want to see our growers successful. And they're they're willing to buy into some of the crazy shit I want to do in these sites in lower yields, uh, attention to detail, and, and some farming practices. So it's a good situation, very good situation. And, you know, I so our plan other, is to stay where we are. And the other stuff will come if it comes, if it comes at all, you know, if, it does. if, if something may present itself. If, if some, we don't want to, like, if, if we were to plant a site, it'd be a small site and it would have to be fallow land. We're not going to rip out trees to plant anything because they're very important. 
um, if we could find a site that we could resurrect and like take the farming to right. a higher standard, that right. would be that, great that falls as well. In line, you know, with what you've been doing. Too. We've got we've got time, and you know, for now, our situation, and as my wife likes to say, you know, being content. I think we've got a really nice feeling of content right now with what we have, who we work with, and relationships that we hope are going to last for the rest of the time we're in business. Right. That's a good place to be. It's pretty nice. And I only hope that five years from now you feel the same way. I don't think you know, it's going to be a problem. Feel... My wife and daughter will keep me right where yeah, I need yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. We talked about everything that you did and, you know, bopped all over Oregon with different people, you know, the business side and all that. But I always kind of looked at you as a winemaker. You know, you're a winemaker. You're not uh I mean, look at Dan Petrosky. I mean, what was he like in journalism in New York? I mean, you know, there's a different story there. For sure. You yeah. know, and he's a winemaker. For as sure. You are, but, you know, I see you as a winemaker. Um, I'm assuming that your winemaking philosophy kind of carries on to what you're doing in the field, which is kind of low intervention, pure. I mean, Absolutely. what are the tenants of, well, you know, what are the things that you want to and have to do to make the wines that? Well, we, we definitely, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I learned everything I know from other people. I didn't go to school for it. I didn't even take the winemaking title on business cards until I had two commercial vintages sold out of respect for those people who had um, <laughs> gone uh, to, to learn this crazy business. And, uh, you know, there's no recipes for us. Uh, we try and show off the vineyard and the place based on what Mother Nature gives us in a given year. Uh, native yeast ferments for what it's worth. Uh, lots of pump over. Um, we want purity and grace, but power to go along with Some it. And freshness. Don't pump over. Why do you pump over? Gentle, super gentle. Yeah, I would. Figure and I just out. and that was another thing from Dominique at Evenland, where they it was all pump he overs. Was pumping I over? had never, never, never done it. It was all like punch down twice a day Did at Saint Innocent. Over distract, in distract, Is distract. That something yeah. he carries. Yeah. And then mix in like a maybe one punch down or pijage midway through just to kind of break up the must a little bit, but it's just, it takes longer for sure. And it's more intensive in the labor aspect, but man, that most you should, that fruit that comes in, if you do it right and mother nature is good to you, most of the work is done. You right. just need to midwife right. it through the finish. We didn't spend enough time, but everything that we talked about yeah. and why the partners are good and what they do yeah. brings you the product that right. we makes work, it easy to we work. We work together so that when we put their vineyard name and their family name on our label, thanking them for their efforts, that it tastes like that place and what they did. And their own personal energy in the place. We can talk about terroir all day long, but that, that human element of terroir and energy is something that, that we crave and we feel like we get it. I mean, you walk, we were offered fruit from Mike Etzel Sr. of Beaufort from his Sequitur Vineyard. I've said it a bunch of times. Did we need Ribbon Ridge fruit? No. Did I take Ribbon Ridge fruit so I could walk vineyards with Mike Etzel and learn from him? Absolutely. You walk that vineyard with him and he's farming that for his own grapes and you feel the energy and his excitement. Right. At his age, he's, he's like, he says, I feel like I'm 40 because he's so excited That's about what he's game, doing. Man. It's great. It's a fine guy. You don't reach beyond your partners for grapes. Do you need to? No, we have everything, everything we need. Is, is... We, get, we get offered fruit uh, often, which is super flattering. Uh, but right now we have a core of vineyards with 
decent vine age. We've got some sites that were planted just for us. And if, if these are the vineyards we work with for the rest of the time we're in business, we're good. So if I close my eyes and imagine towards you've harvested, you know, it's in uh, barrels, whatever. Um, you're tending to them. You know, what happens? It sounds like you're a small crew. Then you guys attend to the next steps. I mean, do you bring a bottling machine in? I mean, oh, for our place, absolutely. We have know, to bottle. labels and all of that. I mean, no, it's all it's a, still hands on. It's and- all hands on. Yeah, we we hand we we hand bottled twelve hundred four ounce bottles for tasting kits to send oh, out do? to our mailing list. Wow, that's a pain in the ass. It was just my <laughs> wife and I. Oh, you have no idea. Um, no, because of our facility size and also the financial burden, we we hire. Um, one of the other Castile family members, John Castile, who has a mobile bottling uh, company, they pull oh, cool. up and they bottle our place twice a year. Uh, I move 100 barrels outside so I can put the glass inside and we bottle everything up. Um, you know, once harvest is over, it comes down to uh, the elevage or the aging. And it's basically just me in there topping every seven to 10 days, right. making it's, sure things it, are taken care of. It's and, really you and just hands on. You know, Henri Jaillet used to say, and I quote him often uh, from one of the books, you know, 80% of wine is great going to barrel. And then the other stuff happens through neglect and not taking care of it. That I think is is possibly one of the most important parts. I agree. Uh, and it's a, it's a full cycle year round. I, I, I totally agree with that. I didn't ask you before. Um, barrel philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um American, French, mixed, you know, older, little new. I mean, <laughs> it's all, all French. Uh, we've spent years working with Coopers to try and um, get barrels just for us. You know, because of our relationship with Dominique Lafon, I was able to get his special Vosges barrels for Chardonnay. Uh, we work with Stefan uh, Chassan and his daughter, uh, Rachel, uh, from Chassan Cooperage. And... Because Dami lets me have Dominique's barrels, I'm like, hey, Stefan, can I just get the same barrels you send to Dominique? And he's like, no. <laughs> I go, I, I don't like no. You asked about growers. Like when, when I see a vineyard I want to have, I am relentless. Right. You're not done until you I keep done. asking. So <laughs> I, was, I took that as a challenge. So I sent him a case of my wines, our wines, uh, neutral barrels, his barrels, other barrels, finished wines. And I'm like, I would like you to make barrels just for me. And so a big part of our cooperage for Chardonnay is all Chassin. Uh, we don't shy away from new wood on Chardonnay. I mean, tell me a great Burgundian that shies away from new wood on Chardonnay. And when it's right, when the pH is low and the acid's high, wood should just frame the wine. It should just be part of it and integrated. And we're 50 to 70% new on Chardonnay. Uh, larger format barrels, 500s, 350s, and some 228s. Uh, Pinot How Noir. long will you use them? Two, three, four oh, seasons. If, 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 well, given our rotation uh, and the ability to sell used barrels, right now Chardonnay barrels are probably on a three to four year okay. rotation out. And you could sell them. We can sell them. And then you I would would take very good people. Pinot Noir, yeah, I would we're, love your barrels. We're probably, yeah, I, I mean, if Lalu Bizler Wad is 100% new wood and people are lining up the door yeah, to get her one soul barrel. I so, get that. Um, and you were and white wine barrels are kind of unicorns because there's, you know, people don't really sell neutral barrels, but for us and our kind of rotation and wanting to. The way you to, want to make your wine. Right. And you were mentioning Pinot. What? Probably 30 to 40%. 
but some, you know, people come and taste in our cellar. And we, when we taste in our cellar, whether it's consumer or trade, it's on a barrel head in the barrel room. And you look around and I, I think what's inside the barrel is as important as the outside. And, and they are clean as a whistle. You would think that they were all new because we take care of them. And I think it's important if you're going to have people in there. And when you walk in the cellar, it should smell good. You shouldn't be like, what is that smell? It should smell yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so I mean, you we, it sounds like you take pride in it. And I think that we try the end result. Um, you, you get all of that, you know, your attention to hygiene and cleanliness and just um, the details. Let me ask you a series of silly questions. <laughs> the wines you make the most of are the cuvées. Oh, yes. So you'd have the La Convert Chard, La Convert Pinot Noir, which hover around a thousand cases. Uh, Cuvée Anne, which is the Yola Amity Hills Chardonnay. Cuvée Ruth, which is the Yola Amity Hills Pinot Noir. Combined, those are probably pushing over 3,000 cases. And well, then the balance, the other half, is single vineyard wines. What's, we talked about all these vineyards. Mm -hmm. What's the most exclusive bottling? And I would guess because yeah. of how much fruit we get out of there or how... Sequitur is the smallest. Is it? I, I'm supposed to get two tons, and I send Mike... So he's got multiple clones planted. I, I don't believe in single clone wines. I believe you show off place through diversity. Right. And so I send him enough picking bins for two tons, and I just request that they put in some of the Etzel Vadensville, which is Vadensville clone Pinot Noir propagated from Marsh Vineyard. I'm like, just fill it up with what you got. So it's like six to seven different clones in there. But he won't fill them up all the way because he doesn't want to crush this beautiful fruit that he spent all season growing. So we got 1.4 tons. It's funny. So it's 87, it's 87 and a half reasons, cases. But you're biting your lip. No, I'm like, Mike, it's, you're gonna del he delivers it himself with his wife. I'm going to put it right through a destemmer anyway. So I'm like, yeah, so now really. I just need to send him five bins. So that that one's probably the smallest. And then outside of that, probably uh, Lucille at about 100 cases. I mean, our single vineyard wines run between about 100 cases, maxing out about 400 cases. So it's right. still tiny in the grand yeah, scheme. Yeah, I mean, that, that stuff. So here's... Um, Here's two who's your favorite kid questions, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. The first one is Pinot or Chardonnay. Mm. And two ways, uh, making it mm. and drinking it. That's mm. the first question. Okay. There's a well, morphing to Chard that we've picked up during this interview. I could tell you that, but I don't know the answer. Uh, I've I've always loved drinking white burgundy. I've been obsessed with, with Chardonnay. Uh, the potential for Willamette Valley Chardonnay has always been there. And I don't think we can continue to blame old clonal selections for why Willamette Valley Chardonnay was not very good. But I think, you know, Josh Bertram and I talk about it all the time. If we did it over again, would we be 100% Chardonnay? Maybe. Are we pushing to potentially be closer to 80, 85% Chardonnay for Walter Scott? There's discussions for sure. Oh, really? Uh, I love making Pinot Noir, and I think, you know, we're getting better and better at it. I, th I think every vintage is an opportunity to learn. And if you look at my winemaking progression, I think I'm about 10% of the way there and still opportunity to learn every vintage. It's like a, a gift to be able to make wine every year. Um, gosh, I, 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 think about, about, I think about both all the time. but uh, I, I kind of get it. I mean, it's, there's a, a situation probably, and a circumstance. Yeah. We've probably know, made more subtle changes with how we 
really in, in farming Chardonnay more than anything, yield, 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 I think is everything. And it has to be lower and lower and lower. Talking with um, uh, Jean-Marie Gaffin, he's like, I have the lowest yields in the Mekon. I'm like, I've been telling people forever that low yields in Chardonnay give you better acidity and more concentration. It's not just the chemistry. We can talk chemistry right. and grapes all the time, but it's just this, this density and this power, but this lightness and, and transparency to place. And we've made probably the most subtle changes with Chardonnay. Pinot Noir, we tinkered with whole cluster. We find ourselves, and whole cluster is, I think, trendy. Some people are very good at it. Some people are like, man, I just love whole cluster. It's like, did it make what the place had to say Good point. more important? Right. Or does it just taste like whole cluster Pinot Noir? Right. What, you're what, translating what, or you're just doing something. Right. Yeah. So for us, I think, and also using like the Munieres sisters is probably one of my favorite domains in Burgundy of Domaine Munieres Gibor. All these stemmed for us seems to be the way we show off our places better. But if if a vineyard feels like it needs 15, 20%, we'll do it. Right. So Again, it's, it's not formulaic. Feeling it. Everything understanding has to express it. itself. Yeah. So. So does that point to you like drinking Chard more than Pinot or you're at a point where they're both good? They're both good. And if- Are you more inquisitive about Chard? Yes. Because you're I, moving- Try as much as possible, just in an attempt to learn. So at home, a fair bit of grower champagne, a lot of grower champagne. Uh, Piedmont, my wife- Well, don't answer that because that's part of my wine list. Oh, Which okay, we're getting it. to soon, got which it, I, I'll- push you for specific. I, I taste as much white burgundy as I can afford and that's uh, continually In shrinking. helping you shape how you, you want to understand and make white wine. You have to drink the great wines of the world so, in order to get better at what you do. Good point there. I mean, burgundy for what you're doing and all that. But like, what's another region Loire. that is really... Yeah, is Giberto, Brendan Stater West. Chenin. Chenin and Blanc. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When, when The Loire's diversity. And, yeah. and, Electric. All right. So... All right, we're gonna we're gonna end the interview portion, um, but close this portion off with how is the twenty two vintage, mm. you know, shaping up? How was it in the field? Pulling it out in the barrels, you know, how are you feeling about that? It was uh, spring was uh, a little terrifying. Okay, um, it's not a it was light the fir word. First time that the Willamette Valley had seen significant frost since eighty uh, seven, mm. I think. Interesting curveball. Um, for us in the Yola Amity Hills, we're usually seven to 10 days behind our friends to the north. So Ribbon Ridge, uh, Dundee Hills, et cetera. Uh, Yamhill Carlton got hit. Those areas got hit pretty hard by frost. Uh, at one point, like Freedom Hill, which is lower elevation foothills of the coast range, we thought we had a 60% loss due to um, frost. From frost, we moved into the coldest, wettest spring in 84 years. What's cold? 40s, oh, 50s? cold. I mean, we get down, we were recently down in the 20s. Oh, okay. So, really so cold cool. and wet and gray. Right. Right. There's a reason a lot of people don't move to Lima Valley, but then they experience summer and fall and like, this place is amazing. Uh, it then stopped raining uh, beginning in July and didn't rain again until the end of October. So we had the probably driest October on record. We had fire hazard warnings in October. Wow. Uh, in 2021, for example, we picked grapes for five weeks. In 2022, we picked everything in 17 days. We did 130 tons with four people. Obviously, in buying grapes, they pick everything, et cetera, deliver it, paying by the acre. Uh, it, you for me, 
we farmed and uh, shoot thinned and set yield as though we had a full crop. We didn't like look at our vineyards as though right. we have a 60% loss. We're like, we're going to clean these heads. We're going to make sure that we're farming for ultimate quality, no matter what we get. But with the lateness of the season, it pushed flowering into perfect weather. So flowering success was like over, I mean, God, it had to be 85, 90%. So you had berries on top of berries. So on that top of compensated. Berries. The, the clusters were wow. heavy and dense. And but even, quality. But, but quality. Not and watery or no, you we, at at lag phase, which is the halfway point. Sojo is an example. Twelve hundred and fifty vines per acre. We were looking at six and a half to seven tons to the acre. So we went one cluster per shoot at lag phase because you have to thin early. Because if you're if you're doing at Verizon, if you're dropping grapes, or if you're you know doing a, a real quality past two weeks before harvest, you're doing nothing but putting money on the ground. Right. It has to be done early if you want quality. And actually with Chardonnay, we set our crop load in June now by sh shoot thinning even more aggressively. So instead of having 20, 22 shoots per vine at 1100 vines per acre, we're at like 14. Wow. So we've reduced our crop by 30%, but it's all the fruit we're gonna keep. Right. And it makes a huge difference. 2022s in barrel, the Pinot Noirs are, are gonna be very flattering. The pH is a little higher, very generous, lots of fruit. Uh, I felt like 21 was like the culmination of all these efforts with Chardonnay for us and was our best effort to date. <laughs> but 2022 is pretty close. Um, but again, it was really about yield and mother nature. It was an October harvest, which yeah, people say it's late and we used to harvest in October all the time, but it was, there were a couple of 80 degree days and us Oregonians start to whimper. We're like, it's supposed to be raining and cold in October. <laughs> what you so, don't like, you're complaining about that you don't have it. So it's, um, it's, so you, it's a good one. People should be excited look, about it. Looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. A um, couple more things. I want you to do our wine list. Nobody leaves a podcast without it. Five questions. Like I said, we've done over 250 of these same five questions to everyone. Mm. And the first question sort of alludes to what I stopped you from answering is what are you drinking now? Mm -hmm. What's in your fridge? What are you tasting? Mm. Whether it's for personal or like you said, you're always drinking burgundy. Yeah. But what are you drinking now? Oh, recently we, we drink a lot of grower champagne. Okay. We've been on uh, right there with you. Piedmont kick. Wait, I think there's the still grower, incredible. Is there one or two things that you come back to? <sighs> I love Eagly. I like big muscular you mentioned champagne. Eagly earlier. Uh, Agripar recently, man. I every time I have one of those, this this power and uh, you know Christophe Rumier likes to talk about weight with weightlessness. Agripar gets that. How's that? They, we don't get much of it in Oregon. I think a lot of wine hits New York and stays here and we get deprived in Oregon, but we reach out to some retailers and we'll I'll hit up Jeremy Noy and be like, hey, here's my budget. Just don't destroy pack me. It up for me. Pack me up with some stuff that you're inspired by. And he knows our ticks. I'm like, you know my wife loves the Nebbiolo and I want to try any, you know, like White burgundy that's in a good range and but you mentioned champagne. Barolo, so let's mm. move from champagne to Barolo. Mm. Um, do we have and saves? Uh, so we've been I drinking a lot of Pitine recently, uh, 18s uh, for Barbaresco. P a i t i n. Yeah, Pitine. Pitine. How'd you uh, come to that? Oh, uh, we you just tasted it and liked it and we, wanted more. We used or? to buy a fair bit, and okay. we found so out a, who the distributor was. It's an ongoing fave. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, Protatory. It's just a classic. So I realize I like Barbaresco more than Barolo. 
and I hate to admit it because, you know, you should be the Barolo drinker, but there's something about it. And, and Protatory never disappoints. No, never. The and 2016s are, are beautiful. Oh, my God. I have so much of it. 17 yep. ain't bad either. What was no. the bad vintage year in Italy? 18 or something? <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. But the best so. producers make the best wine in the I know. vintages, right? All right. So now we got Gros Champagne, Barolo. Anything else? Um, You know, uh, Kathy and Jess like Riesling a lot, so there's some Riesling around. Uh, I used to drink Keller, but can't afford them now. I know. Uh, always been a big fan of Muller Couture, so I like the drier styles. Uh, you know, Loire Valley. Um, All right, those are good ones. Yeah. You don't have to dig yeah. too deep. Um, Riesling's a big Psalm favorite. It sure is. All right, so second question may be the goofiest one. The question is favorite wine and food pairing? Yours. Not what oh. you think is good, but... You know, I assume no one eats it once a month, you know, maybe. But what's that perfect wine and perfect food combo? You have one? Some people, like, yell at me and don't answer the question. <laughs> I'm like, really? We're getting into this? Oh, uh, a lobster roll and white burgundy. My wife loves lobster rolls. And uh, white so, burgundy on a lobster roll is, is pretty magical. So nobody's ever given me that answer, and that's a good one because mm. I love lobster. I love lobster rolls. Hey, I love white burgundy. Now, we're talking lobster roll with the roll, right? So Correct. you're eating the – and then with the mayo one or the buttery one? Mayo, but so the other day – Either one worked, but the, the burgundy works with the mayo, the dressing. Oh, too. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So my wife loves them and usually just take an, an old like Franz hot dog bun – and I would like shave off some of the side and then yeah. fry it in butter. butter. Well, this time I thought, well, I think I'll make it a little more crunchy and put it under the broiler. And she came into the, the kitchen and she's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you frying it? I'm like, I thought this would be more. And I was, I was scolded. And the then butter, I got, that I got, butter thing does something. It does. And I got a little surly back and like, I'm trying to make dinner and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so that didn't go over so well. And it's um, a good one. Yeah. All right. So uh, good burgundy, white burgundy and a lobster roll. Um, all right, COVID is over. You're a busy guy, but favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And I think you can answer this two ways. If you could give me some a place or two around you mm. where the selection is great, mm. the vibe is great, mm. the people are great. You know, it could be just a wine bar. It could be a restaurant with great wine and all. Like we're sitting in Coleman. Katya has like, off the charts list i'll bet i mean beyond thoughtful you know like this yeah <clears throat> i'm not saying answer it that way but give me that answer mm -hmm. and then pick any place in your travels whether it's new york or europe mm -hmm. you know where a place stands out is that hard for you to answer no. and by answering it you're not leaving anyone out like when you get no home, no no i no. listen to that podcast why didn't you mention it? no we're all friends <clears throat> back there uh you know recently in so we live in the yellow hills we're out in the country it's it's 30 minutes to mcminnville Okay. Uh, we spend a lot of time at home with our daughter. Uh, so that's kind of our favorite uh, wine bar is our uh, okay. island in the kitchen. But uh, recently, uh, Evan Martin of uh, Martin Woods Wine opened up a wine bar in McMinnville called Hi-Fi. They've got vinyl. Hi-Fi? Hi-Fi. Because he's doing music and vinyl? Music. And they've got a beautiful bar, a staff that's incredibly knowledgeable. They will bring out blind wines. The list is like... It, it, the list would like be rad in New York City. It's super diverse. It touches all the bases, cool. all the nerdy That's stuff, the all the I'm classics. 
it, when, if you come to the Lima Valley, it's definitely one of the best places Hi-fi. to go. Hi-fi. Anything else there? Not in like McMinnville? No, uh, you know, anywhere in your travels outside of uh, the, uh, you know, in Oregon. So in, in Burgundy last uh, fall, so because we were so late uh, in the Willamette Valley, uh, Josh Bergstrom sent me a text message. He's like, I'll bet you're thinking about going work harvest in Burgundy. I'm like, no, not really. And my wife's, <laughs> my, my wife's like, you need to go. I'm like, really? Are you cool with this? And she's like, take Kathy, who's our assistant winemaker, and connect the dots and go see friends and go, go try and learn more. So, so we did for two weeks. Wow. And uh, one of the fun places in Marceau, a lot of people talk about it is Souffle. The food is is spell it. S O U F L O T. Le Souffle. Okay. It's right on the the main main drive there. Uh, it's it was the food is super well executed. Nothing like mind blowing. Right. Uh, the list is inexpensive given super today's great. terms, but you're also there, so it's super leaving the seller at a certain price, and they don't mark it up a lot. And uh, it was. That's that's a that's a good spot. Those are Plus, two. there's all these little places yeah, in, I mean, in the get, small villages. Listen, Once you get outside of Bone, the little places sounds good, and that's why we do this because yeah. you know people are traveling. They're like, "Hey, I remember Ken mentioned this. We'll look for it." But they're gonna hit stuff on the way. Totally. All right. Fourth question. The question is favorite all time wine. When I started the podcast many years ago, I wanted to sit down with people, and I kind of wanted what was the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank. Mm. Morphed away from that. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in with you is what's that wine or two that opened your eyes, that was a gateway, that changed the way you thought about things, that got you in the game? Mm-hmm. Is there a wine or two that you can recall <laughs> that, you know, I wouldn't say life-changing, but had a big effect? Uh, a classic from Oregon in 2011. Uh, 1993 Adelsheim Seven Springs Vineyard Pinot Noir out of Magnum. So in 11, you drank a 93 Adelsheim. Mm-hmm. With Andrew Turner and his wife and my wife uh, at his house uh, just before answer. harvest. It was 12.7% alcohol. 1993 was completely overlooked vintage in the Willamette Valley because 92 was hot. Parker loved it. 94 was low dark. yield, super dark, concentrated. 93 is like, what about me? Kind of like 93 Burgundies, which... Were amazing it was it was a beautiful it was still alive and fresh um i can say several bottles from rouleau that have uh inspired me uh so rouleau for sure i mean because there's a of reason the wines why anyway but you you there's a connection yeah yeah uh, i mean that those those are good answers i mean yeah. the the answers i'm looking for like i said are not you know a 61 petrus it's, right. it's something that meant something to you. yeah all right last question and you may have to dig a little on this one. Some people are better at it than others. But so I ask people to recommend the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. Mm. And I'm looking for a red, I'm looking for a white. And we can go category like Muscadet is a great value. Oh, for sure. You know, that type of thing. But you know, there's makers and can you think of anything? And if you want to stay in Oregon, if they could cover that, or any wines anywhere. Like mm. I always say, my kids are in their late 20s, yeah, yeah. you know, early 30s. They can't show up at a party with crappy wine. They can't show up at a dinner. Yeah. But they're not spending 50 bucks. Yeah. How do you wow at 19, 22? Oof. It's harder and harder. Uh, it turns but, out but you, you reds kinda, are harder than whites. You took it, though. I mean, Muscadet. 
Okay. I mean, get, so in, in throwing you Muscadet, can you think of something else categorically or a region or whatever? Um, we'll put Muscadet down. I think you not can the easiest prime price point anymore. No, it's not. It's very tough, and it's it's one that you can't. It exists. Offer. It does exist. Eric Asimov will tell you because he does uh, two three times a year best wines under twenty bucks. Right, and he, and he comes up with a nice he, diverse. He, he list. tastes a, a lot of those. You know, we can get under twenty wholesale, but that puts it at like thirty no, bucks, so it's not fair. Can't do that. But um, at a thirty dollar wine, let's mention that. Yeah. You know, if if you were looking in the twenty two range and it was a gift <sighs> and you had a ball, look for the Walter Scott. All right, so let's stay with Muscadet. I think you can probably find some Chianti in the under 22, maybe. Maybe. Chianti, maybe? yeah, Classico. Sure. Or, yeah, that, that answer's come up yeah. multiple times because it was a no-brainer, but the right. way prices have been going. You can get, like, uh, Gamay, Bojo for that price. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not you with know, like, but you'd get a village level for 22. Now. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. All right, so those no. are good ones. I didn't mention that um, I post the answers. Um, so one of the things we do at the end of the show, we do a thing called the weekly wine sip um, where we taste and evaluate a wine. And, you know, it makes total sense for a winemaker. Our problem is, and I take responsibility, so I don't even shy away, was because of all the travels and, you know, carrying bottles of wine, and importers being everywhere, we don't have a bottle of wine. But to that question, if you had the choice of tasting anything, what bottle would you have brought here? From from us? Yeah. Uh, I would have brought 2021 Freedom Hill Chardonnay. And why? I think, one, it's our team favorite. The vineyard okay. is like, everyone like gravitates to ex novo or when we had Seven Springs or want Seven Springs or Cuvée Inn or, or, or whatever. And Freedom Hill... Obviously known as a great Pinot Noir vineyard. I think it's a better Chardonnay vineyard. Oh, really? Uh, cool. In my, my opinion. Uh, they've been committed to it since 81 uh, when they planted the vineyard. Uh, plenty of people made single vineyard Chardonnay from there. Uh, we started out with one acre. Uh, they planted four more for us. Plus, we gobbled up a contiguous acre that St. Innocent stepped away from. So it's some of our oldest vines. It is... Decent amount of production, four hundred and ten cases. Okay, so and I would restaurants. Say, absolutely, it is. It's everything that I hope for in in what we try to accomplish with Chardonnay. It has power, weight, density, lightness, freshness, minerality. It's got a kiss of reduction. My threshold's very high, and it's something that we pursue and think amplifies great things about Chardonnay. Uh, it, it also has more of the old vines in it than it's had in the past. And it's, it's kind of like everything I've tried to been showing off from Freedom Hill since we first started working with that Chardonnay in 2012. So like nine vintages, this is like, yes, this is everything that I hope I could show from Freedom Hill right here uh, with this particular wine. And it's not just because it's the vintage we're selling right now. It's all these little things that we did over the last several years 2018, reducing yields by 30% in June, switching over to crushing our Chardonnay, more lees contact, less sulfur additions, different barrels. Uh, all these things came together with a really great vintage in 2021 to produce a wine that I think is going to give pleasure now after about six months, but I honestly believe could see 10 to 15 years out That's be in good shape. 
be nice to get multiple bottles and drink it a few annually, that type of thing. Yeah. All right, let's talk about, um, I got to do a wrap up, but talk to me quickly. We talked a little about it, but in reference to stating specific wines or getting these wines, there's two things, info and getting them. But let's talk about this wine club first. Oh, sure. Um, we can go online to Walter Scott yep. Wine Walter or Sco Wines? Wines, uh, plural. Okay. WalterScottWines.com. Easy uh, to navigate, been on it. You can go to the Wolfpack you know, yep. thing and you what, sign up? Uh, you can sign up. Uh, and how does it work? You know, how much annually? It's a subscription. Okay. And we're shipping uh, quarterly now because of weather. It gets harder and harder to right. ship. Uh, my wife, uh, Erica, and then Jessica Pierce, they run the Wolf Pack. They just basically tell me what to do. Um, What's the selection process? The selection, it's, it's, it's two bottles of all the wines that we make. Oh, and so you get it's two bottles per month. Okay, and with an opportunity to buy those wines, uh, it's the only. So you're looking at a couple of cases a year. About two. So you got to be ready to want to drink that kind of wine. I mean, mm -hmm. you got to be a fan and want to own or collect a little Walter Scott. A little bit, and you want the diversity or whatever. Yep. And I guess if you love something, and you figure away now. Now, if I want more information on the wines in the winery. Go to the website. Website. It's got all the text sheets on it. And if you need more information, you you can my email's on there. Contact. My wife's email's on there. Jess's just email is on there. The contact thing. Just straight to us. And it'll be a reply directly from the you team. You could buy DTC there? You can. We are what what's the best way? I don't wanna, you know, if people Yeah, you you can buy direct. We can, you know, we, we also want people to support our retailers in other markets. Well, that's where I was going to. We, I mean, it restaurant it's a restaurant fave. Um, you know, people like having it on yeah. the list. If they're doing yeah. a limited American Pinot Chart thing, yeah. you know, they, they like to have guys like you on. And There's you we've of, we've been really we want a balance of distribution and direct consumer. Because the right. economy does strange things. Right. about every seven to nine years. So you want that balance in your yep. portfolio. We also, without Grand Cru, without Vintage 59 in California, without Kraft in Colorado, we wouldn't be in the position we're in. So we make sure that our distributors, even in low yielding vintages, like when we released the 2019s in 2021, should we have kept more of that at home to make more money? Yeah. Maybe, but if we hadn't had Grand you Cru busting the their right ass, thing. we honored to the percentages we were down in production, what we got them in the past because they got us here. Without them, we would have nothing. You know, you can't you can't go and send out a bunch of wine and get all this exposure and put on wine lists and be like, okay, your allocation's cut in half because we sell all of a DTC to make more money. And ultimately, it's it's a little bit more work and that work-life balance. It, it pays off. It's fun to come to New York for a day or two to, to sell wine. It's not really work when you're like working with people that you respect so much right. who believe in what you're doing. Right. It's, it's, it's actually easy to do because yeah. everything's been done. All right, Ken, we got to wrap up. Let me do a quick uh, wrap up and then we're going to say goodbye. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the .com. That's Sam at the .com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods if you like the show leave a review we ask you to subscribe because they'll be delivered you know automatically when they're done 
Um, you can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on Twitter at BenRuby. I know that's confusing, but you can reach us on either one with the hashtag The Great Nation um, to find us on both. We're on Facebook at The Great Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Ken's wine list, and I will uh, make reference to uh, the wine that we talked about, our Phantom Weekly Wine Sip. <laughs> um, selections on our uh, media sites um ken just to double down one more time the best place to find the most info for walter scott is to go where walterscottwines.com okay and i've been on the site a lot and like ken said there's tech sheets there's what's available what's coming philosophies all that stuff pictures of lucy everything yep um all right I want to thank our guest, Ken Paolo. Ken, who is the proprietor with Erica at um, Walter Scott Wines. Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.